Hello and welcome to the Violet Podcast. This week we will be discussing capital punishment. Although it's not a particularly big issue in British politics at the moment, it remains a massive issue in many countries around the world, and support for it, despite the fact that it was outlawed in 1965 in this country, remains astonishingly high. As always, if you have any strong thoughts, feelings, or comments on this week's episode, please do get in touch with us. You can tweet us at underscore the violet underscore, you can email contact.theviolet at gmail.com, or you can visit our website, www.theviolet.net. Thanks for listening. The inspiration for this week's podcast topic doesn't actually come from an event or, or um, issue that's that's cropped up this week. It comes from our research for previous podcast episodes. So it's always helpful when preparing for something like this to take a look at the uh, opinions and points of people that you disagree with. So we've both spent a fair bit of time before previous podcast episodes on the Daily Mail's website, on the Sun's website, looking at the arguments that people we disagree with would make. And it's astonishing how often you look at an article on one of these websites that's about somebody committing some sort of unlawful, criminal or immoral act. And underneath the article in the comments section, there are um, reams and reams of readers arguing that this person should be put to death for whatever it is they've done. And so we feel the death penalty is an important topic that needs to be discussed because even though it was abolished in the UK in 1965, and forgive me older listeners of The Violet for saying that was a long time ago, it still remains strangely popular in the country today. So the last executions uh, in the UK actually took place in 1964. And by that point, the death penalty had already been abolished for most of the crimes uh, for which it had previously applied. It was outlawed in its entirety in 1965 by Harold Wilson's government. What's interesting is that at the point it was abolished, the death penalty still had about 75% support amongst the general public in the UK. And it was only very recently, in 2014, that for the very first time in British polling history, support for the death penalty dropped below 50%. Now, so far we've been talking about the death penalty in the UK, but over the course of this podcast we'll be talking about it more generally uh, and its use around the world. So there are still 54 countries around the world which retain and frequently use the death penalty, uh, although the bulk of those executions happen in just a handful. Uh, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, and Pakistan. And as we often end up saying on The Violet, it's important to realise that this, these issues are not uh, specific to different countries. And while there might be idiosyncratic differences and nuances between different parts of the world, the theoretical arguments about the death penalty and the efficacy of the death penalty are important regardless of which particular country we're talking about. So whilst a lot of our examples are going to be uh, UK or America based, simply because that's what we have the most access to, um, these arguments are applicable all around the world. So the first thing that we need to ask when looking at the death penalty and whether it should be used and if it should be used when, is to think about what the point of the justice system is. So 
people break the law, people commit criminal acts, we then have some sort of process to deal with that. But we need to ask ourselves, what is the goal of that process? And what, in a sort of theoretical setting, would the perfect justice system look like? So this relies entirely on your definition of what justice is. And to simplify a very complex spectrum of views, there are two main schools of thought on this debate about what justice is. One school of thought is rooted in the ideas of traditional conservatism, that some people are flawed, some people do bad things, and that inherently there is something wrong or, or evil uh, about them and what they've done. And in this school of thought, justice should be about retribution. Justice is state-sanctioned revenge. It is designed to be as horrible and uh, as violent as possible, so that first of all, the individual who did it does not do it again. Um, and secondly, so that other people see this punishment, see how harsh it is, and think, I wouldn't want that to happen to me, therefore I'm not going to, to commit crimes. So in this view, the best way to, to stop crime from happening is through fear uh, or through punishment. The other school of thought on this is uh, rehabilitation, which is much more founded on a liberal view that people are potentially malleable uh, and they can change their views and their thoughts and the way that they act. Uh, and that ultimately the goal of the justice system should be to create uh, or to remake productive individuals who can reintegrate into society uh, and not commit further crimes. So this is a more functional view, believing that you can reshape people, that you don't need to do the most horrible things to them, uh, either as retribution for what they've done or to deter others in the future, but rather that you can re-educate people uh, and, and reintegrate them into society. Uh, and this is the model which is, is generally used in Norwegian prisons. And it's worth noting that in Norway's prisons, the reoffending rate is about 20%. Uh, whereas in the UK, the reoffending rate is somewhere around 70%. And we'll get into that in a moment, but I think it's important to remember that, that whenever we're um, trying to conceptualise a big philosophical problem like this and dividing it up into sort of two camps or two schools of thought, there are multiple ways of doing that and there are multiple ways of, of conceptualising those two schools. So another way that you might want to divide... Um, opinions on the criminal justice system and the way it should work is about whether it's forward-looking or backward-looking. So given that someone has done something bad, someone has killed someone for example, um, is the point of punishing them then uh, to do with the fact that that has happened in the past, that bad thing has happened in the past and it needs to be corrected for. They deserve to be punished. They deserve some sort of retribution that justice is about some sort of um, almost spiritual balance that a bad thing has happened to someone and therefore they need to suffer something bad too or is it forward-looking given that something bad has happened is the point of punishment whether that's in the form of something unpleasant or whether it's in the form of rehabilitation is it then to prevent that from happening in the future rather than to hand out some sort of retribution to the person who did it um, and as always, the, the, the Violet is about dialogue and getting you to think about new things and new ways of looking at the world. Uh, and we hope that this has helped you to think a bit about what your views on justice are and where you lie uh, in these two ways of con uh, conceptualizing that spectrum. The reason that we've laid this out is because the death penalty discussion and debate uh, 
rests fundamentally on this theory, and it falls into both categories. Firstly, if we're thinking about the backwards-looking view of justice, is the death penalty something that needs to be enacted in order to avenge or to correct for past wrongs? And secondly, looking forwards, is the death penalty an effective way to stop those similar crimes happening in the future through deterrence? Another thing to think about before we get into the specifics of the arguments for and against the use of the death penalty is the quite unhelpful criminal dichotomy uh, that exists in the minds of many Daily Mail readers. Uh, and that is that there are on one hand good law-abiding citizens and on the other there are dangerous criminals who know what they've done and are entirely responsible for their actions uh, and once you cross the line into being a criminal you forfeit all rights and you should be punished um, and you are a bad person. And this is unhelpful because of course there are different shades of, of crime. Um, on a very like basic flippant level, if you've driven 32 miles per hour in a 30 zone, technically you've broken the law, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you are a criminal who forfeits all rights and you should be punished horribly um, for those actions. And more seriously, what is deemed to be criminal does change over time, especially on what we might call the higher or the more serious end of the scale. So in the UK, we used to have something called the bloody code, uh, which had the death penalty for, I think, 220 different crimes. Um, so these were seen as really serious criminal offences, something that would warrant your execution. Um, but a lot of them are things which we would not even consider crimes nowadays. So these are not things like theft, for example, which was a capital offence in the bloody code and now has a much lower penalty. These are things which are absolutely not seen as crimes anymore. So, for example, uh, homosexuality... Uh, was seen as a crime uh, in the bloody code deserving of the death penalty and the last executions for that were carried out in the 19th century. Um, spending more than a month in the company of gypsies was also seen as a capital offence. So if you hung out with gypsies for more than a month, you could also be executed. So the idea of a strict binary division between criminals and not criminals is something which is generally quite unhelpful. Firstly, because what a crime is changes over time in terms of its definition. And secondly, the reasons and the context in which people commit crimes is usually much more complex than emotive retellings of the story uh, would have us think. It's also worth pointing out that the legal code of a particular country and the moral code of the citizens within it don't necessarily match up, and that just because something is illegal, it isn't necessarily immoral, and vice versa. And so part of um, what I think lies behind this uh, really unhelpful thinking that criminals are bad people and everyone else is good is... Um, and I often think this is quite patriotic, actually, that people who sort of love their country and think that Britain is great think that therefore British law must be the perfect embodiment of sort of the rules by which we must live. But it's not the case in any country that what is legal is necessarily uh, what is moral. And it may well be the case that there are people who break the law uh, because they have strong um moral convictions which contradict what the law says. Uh, for example, uh, people protesting for LGBT rights in Russia are criminals. They are, technically, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are bad people. What they are doing is fighting a law which prevents them from doing something that they see as perfectly moral and is part of them. 
The second thing I would say revolves around something I mentioned earlier of seeing criminals as bad people and seeing non-criminals as good people. And the idea uh, that this rests on, that anyone is inherently good or bad, is also an extremely misguided and extremely dangerous notion. Uh, And one way in which you can see this is sort of true crime documentaries and crime novels and crime thrillers and all of this are fantastically popular and there are an extraordinary number of people who uh, watch these shows and these films and these read these books and love them uh, and they've often got really complex characters in anti-heroes people who end up committing some sort of horrible crime uh, but the story goes through their sort of reasoning uh, and their life and their anguish and all the complex emotions they're going through that lead up to this uh, and they're made very human and it's made very understandable even if not acceptable but very understandable that they've done whatever it is they've done and when people are given that sort of information and pulled into a story on the inside like that we're often much more sympathetic towards people who have, through uh, the process of a very difficult life, made some terrible decisions and done some terrible things. Whereas when these things are just presented flatly as a statistic, someone is convicted of murder, someone is convicted of theft, someone is convicted of arson, whatever, and um, we just see that on the news, and we don't understand the full story behind it. There is a temptation to just label them as inherently bad, But what we need to remember is that even if we don't know those complex stories about someone's character, about someone's decisions, about someone's entire life, those complex stories exist in every single criminal case that happens at any time, anywhere in the world. And we need to be aware that that nuanced view exists, even if we don't actually know what it is. And that leads us nicely onto the first argument that proponents of the death penalty often look forward, which is that it is an effective deterrent. The argument here is pretty simple and pretty easy to understand. It's simply that if the strength of punishment uh, changes the effect to which it's a deterrent for criminals, and assuming that what most people fear the most is death, that anyone who is considering Um, committing some sort of heavily immoral, heavily criminal act that they are liable to be killed for should they be caught is therefore much uh, much less likely to do it in the first place because they will be scared of the consequences and therefore simply by having the death penalty um, present we can reduce the number of crimes that happen. This is interesting because it presupposes a view of crime where people very meticulously plan out their crimes in advance uh, and weigh up the pros and cons and the risks uh, which might be associated with that crime if they're caught and convicted. Uh, And for the kind of crimes where people would generally say the death penalty should be applied, for example murder, the vast majority of those crimes are committed in the heat of the moment under the influence of alcohol or drugs. and it's not something that's planned out you know, in detail beforehand. And for those people that plan out their crimes in detail beforehand, they usually don't plan to be caught. Uh, and so this, this doesn't really factor into their, uh, into their calculations to a great degree. Um, and people often, I think, also do not think about the legal ramifications of their actions in general uh, when, we're getting, when we're getting to that point. Um, I think this is also something which is 
statistically uh, empirically verifiable to be to be untrue that having the death penalty uh, for very serious crimes does not reduce the crime rate um, and conversely removing the death penalty as a potential threat does not increase the crime rate um, so we can see that in countries which have abolished the death penalty Canada for example uh, serious crime rates have not correspondingly risen so in Canada uh, in 2003 which was 27 years after the abolition of the death penalty, murder rates had fallen by 44%. So clearly the, the lack of a, a death penalty threat had not increased uh, the number of murders or made people feel that since the risks were lower, uh, they were more free to murder people. Uh, another interesting case study is the USA, and the USA is interesting because different states have different laws regarding the death penalty, so it's legal in some and not in others. Uh, and in fact, if we average out the murder rate in states which use the death penalty, in 2004, that was 5.71 per uh, 100,000. Uh, whereas in um, the states that didn't use the death penalty, it was 4.02 per 100,000. So obviously, that there's loads of other statistical white noise there about income and, and health and other, other metrics in those states which might affect things. But it does not appear that there is a statistical correlation between the death penalty and the rate of serious crime. The third argument as to why the death penalty doesn't work as a deterrent is again empirical, uh, which is that studies or psychological studies, statistical studies into what affects criminal behavior and the extent of criminal behavior routinely find that being caught is an effective deterrent. And the probability that someone will be caught when they do something does affect the extent to which they do it. But the severity of the punishment does not have any statistical effect. So if the police force is very efficient and people know before they do something that the probability of them being arrested and then being tried is very high, they are much less likely to do it regardless of what the punishment is at the other end, they will be less likely to do it. And this is actually something that we've both come across in our careers as teachers. It's something that you're taught um, in teacher training, uh, when you're managing a class, when you're managing the behaviour of students, which is kind of like being your own government in a very mini microcosmic way, that if you want to encourage good behaviour amongst students, what matters is that you catch all students um, committing any sort of bad behaviour and hand out some sort of minor punishment to them, that is far, far more effective than letting a large number slip through the net and giving very heavy punishments to a few students. It's not the weight of punishment that matters, it's the probability of being punished. Having taken all of this into account and pointed out that the death penalty is statistically not an effective way to deter crime, some people would still make the argument that certain criminals are beyond rehabilitation and that they've done it already, they've been caught, they've been convicted, there is no chance that they can be reformed into effective members of society, why should we not just execute them and remove them from the equation entirely so that they do not pose a threat to others in the future? We would hope that the bar for this is particularly high and that most people can be rehabilitated back in society in some way, but it may well be the case, absolutely, that some people 
for whatever reason, because of whatever's happened in their lives and, and however they sort of mentally function, um, they are unable to be safely reintegrated back into society. And regardless of the, the best rehabilitation techniques that we might have available to us at the time, it's impossible to be able to guarantee that they will be safe uh, to be reintegrated into society and they need to be removed. We need to accept that that situation may rarely but may sometimes occur and that those people need to be removed from society in some way but that is exactly what prison is the point of prison is that it is a parallel society is that it is outside of society and that society is being shielded from anyone who is being imprisoned and so for those people who are beyond rehabilitation the option of life imprisonment exists and they can we can guarantee that that person will not be a dangerous society in the future yeah, and in, in that way, prison effectively effectively functions as a form of civic or societal death without actually needing to physically kill the person. Um, they are effectively removed from society at large. The most common counter-argument that people would f put forward to that point is that the death penalty is cheaper than life imprisonment and that if you want to imprison someone, you have to pay for their food, for their shelter, for their water, for anything else that they might need to live, uh, and that is all at the taxpayer's expense. This is something that isn't actually, again, statistically true. So if you implement the death penalty immediately with very few legal safeguards, you just have a case and then you immediately kill the person, then yes, it would be cheaper. But because of the seriousness of the death penalty, the fact that it is irreversible, in any robust justice system, you would have um, a lot of appeals, uh, you need a lot of money for jury selection, you need a, a lot of money for the lawyers, and you would have numerous iterations of the case uh, because the penalty is so final. The bar for convicting that person um, and sentencing them to death is so much higher. And statistical studies in the USA show that um, it costs about 1.12 million more to sentence someone to death than it does to keep them in prison for life because of all of those costs which are associated uh, with giving someone the death penalty. And of course, we can't just say, well, let's scrap all of those appeals, let's scrap all of those processes, because then there is a very real risk that you will mistakenly sentence someone to the death penalty for something they didn't do. And in the US, where each state gets to set its own laws on the death penalty, uh, the death penalty or capital punishment is formally outlawed uh, in 23 states and formally in use in 13 states with recent executions. But there are 14 states where capital punishment or the death penalty is still technically on the books, but isn't really used anymore. And the reason for that isn't so much a moral one, but as we've just laid out, a practical one. Because the death penalty is very popular amongst populations within those states, um, those state governors and legislatures don't want to abolish it entirely because they don't want to face the political backlash, but they're not actually carrying them out. They've effectively suspended them because it is simply too expensive to go through all of those different uh, legal processes in order to actually execute someone. A very similar but slightly different argument for the death penalty is that there is zero risk of recidivism. So recidivism means uh, being released back into society, having been tried and convicted and punished for some sort of crime, going back into society and committing that crime again. 
So we're not here talking about people who are perhaps beyond rehabilitation. What we're saying here is that rehabilitation is a risky process. There is no sort of rehabilitation strategy with 100% effectiveness and um, it's always going to be the case that there are some people who, having been through the justice system, whether they've been imprisoned, whether it's been community service, whether it's been some sort of re rehabilitation program, whatever has happened to them, who are then released back into society and who commit the same crime again. And the argument for the death penalty here is that there is simply zero risk of that. If somebody is killed for the crime that they committed, there is, of course, uh, a guaranteed 0% chance that they will commit that crime again. The logical conclusion of this argument, however, is that capital punishment should therefore be introduced for all crimes, um, because if capital punishment is the most effective way uh, to prevent re-offending uh, with a 100% success rate, then we should simply introduce it for all crimes. And the fact that the vast majority of people would not demand the the death penalty for speeding or for like petty theft uh, suggests that this is not the only consideration we have to take into account whilst thinking about penalties for crimes. There is a need to trade off uh, the welfare lost to the person that's been imprisoned or executed with um, the welfare benefit to society by crime prevention. Um, and everyone, regardless of their views on the death penalty, must accept that at some point that trade-off is not worth it. Uh, and if you believe that the the loss of life is in itself uh, a, like the, the biggest loss of welfare that can happen uh, to a person, this is never outweighed by the, the welfare benefit to society. And as we've previously said, that same welfare benefit can be achieved simply by life imprisonment. And this links back to something we were saying at the beginning of the podcast about uh, a binary view of criminals as bad people and non-criminals as good people, and how a lot of arguments for the death penalty seem to rest on the idea that as soon as someone has committed a crime, or as soon as someone has committed a crime that the person making this argument thinks is of sufficient severity, um, their welfare is somehow no longer um, of note, no longer matters, and they sort of deserve whatever's coming to them. And that's not true. Um, as we've said, everyone's welfare matters. Everyone, if we're uh, establishing any sort of reasonable, rational, tolerant, liberal political system, for any part of that political system, any institution within that political system, we need to view everybody as equal. We need to take everyone's welfare into account, regardless of who that person is and whether they've committed a criminal act or not. And so the damage to the welfare of the person convicted of whatever it is they've been convicted of matters. And exactly how much welfare we sort of uh, take away from that person by imprisoning them or killing them or whatever is obviously impossible to quantify and the exact amount of welfare that they might remove from people by being released into society and committing horrible acts again is impossible to to quantify and there's a very difficult debate to be had there but the fact that both of those problems exist and they need to be balanced against each other and they both need to be taken into account is in, in, in my view at least, impossible to argue against. A final argument which is commonly put forward in defence of the death penalty is that the death penalty is justice. 
and that links to the retributive models of justice that we talked about previously that if a wrong has been done it must be avenged it's an eye for an eye kind of system where if you've done something wrong you deserve the punishment retroactively for your crime uh, or your transgression against society um, and this argument is often couched in in religious terms um, often with biblical references uh, where, where the phrase an eye for an eye is originally from I think when we're discussing uh, religious views on justice and not just biblical views the other sort of topical uh, thing we have to talk about here is of course uh, Islamic law and a lot of uh, the Quran has quite uh, explicit and clear um, rules on what punishments are appropriate for what particular crimes I think the argument we have to make here is the same really as the argument we made in the homosexuality and religion podcast which is that there is a a myth held by a lot of people both religious and non-religious that everyone within a religious group everyone within a spiritual group everyone with a cultural group adheres to the same set of rules now in religious groups this is made more complicated by the fact that often those rules are written down into one particular text Um, but the idea that everyone who is a Christian believes equally in every word in the Bible and that that uh, the words of the Bible are taken literally by everyone who's a Christian is just not true every single person in every single religion develops their own interpretation of their religion based on their reading of those texts based on their discussion with their friends and family members and religious leaders within their within their lives um, they come to their own conclusions about what to draw from the words on that page and what the words on that page mean and so any claim that one's own particular uh, religious belief is objectively true because it's their way of reading or interpreting that particular religious text is subjective and flawed and cannot be used as an axiom for building uh, a justice system. Yeah, so for example, in, in Islam or in traditional Islamic jurisprudence, uh, there are actually five, there are five offences uh, which in, inherently carry the death penalty. Do you know what they are? Give it a go. Um, uh, apostasy. No, so that one's actually fairly contested by various scholars, but some do think it. There's five which are fairly universal. That almost proves my point, because I know that's Hadith. Whoever changes his religion, kill him. Um, but then, obviously, yeah, there's there's multiple interpretations of that. Uh, in which case, I'm guessing, because that's the only one that I knew in inverted commas and I didn't even know it. So I'm, I'm going to guess murder. Um, so actually, not, not even murder. Murder is a civil offence in traditional Islamic jurisprudence, so it's prosecuted by the individual against the individual and you know the death penalty isn't mandated so the five the five kind of capital state crimes are xena or unlawful sexual intercourse wrongfully accusing someone of xena uh drinking alcohol highway robbery and certain forms of theft and scholars disagree or dispute whether apostasy and rebellion against the lawful ruler uh, are also capital offenses but i think that's a very good example to show that you know, over time and in different Islamic societies, what's been seen as a religiously mandated capital offence has changed massively. Uh, as have the terms or the conditions for convicting someone of those offences, because even though they are capital offences, uh, the standards of evidence are, are quite remarkably high for passing those sentences. 
but even putting all of this aside, the most the most obvious argument against religious justifications for the death penalty is that in multicultural societies or in societies where people follow different religious traditions or different interpretations of a religion, the state should not be imposing a singular religious interpretation across a breadth of people who do not all agree with uh, a religious basis for law. And to go back to the broader point about justice, we should point out that um, the religious arguments for the death penalty are merely a subset of broader justice arguments for the death penalty. The idea that there is simply some sort of moral match between certain offences, certain crimes, certain moral wrongs, and certain punishments that, not in any sort of um, notable, empirical, observable way about the world, but in some sort of uh, cosmic, moral way, correct for that bad thing that has been done. And when you try to explain it in abstract terms like that, you realise how subjective this is. The idea that any uh, crime has a matching punishment, if you don't have some sort of objective measure of, say, whether that punishment reduces the extent to which that crime happens in society, which we know the death penalty doesn't, then it just becomes a purely subjective idea for different people as to what they think the appropriate punishment is. Now, some people will come to that judgment um, on a religious basis, others will not. Lots of people do make this sort of justice argument for the death penalty, uh, not from a religious standpoint at all, who aren't religious, but it doesn't really matter whether someone's own personal religious beliefs are backing up that almost metaphysical argument they're making it's still subjective and is therefore no basis for a justice system. We can see the lack of objectivity in this because the phrase an eye for an eye implies equivalence that if someone has done something wrong, something equivalently bad should be done to them. But if someone commits arson, we don't go and burn their house down. If someone commits theft, we don't then just go and steal something from them. So the punishments are not perfectly physically equivalent to crimes we decide uh, subjectively what the equivalence is and as we've said previously there are loads of things which people used to think were equivalent to the death penalty which we would now be horrified at um and so these these we have to realize these are subjective judgments um and if we're doing something as serious as taking away someone's life that's something you should have a pretty objective standard for doing um, the other thing I would say is that this is a bit of a Brexity argument, and I don't use this in a in a demeaning way. Um, what I mean is that support for the death penalty is very closely correlated with traditionalist views of society and morality, and actually support for the death penalty is the best statistical predictor for whether someone voted for Brexit or not, um, suggesting, on a side note, that Brexit was more of a cultural or identity vote than one based on economics. Um, this again is not something we can objectively disprove as wrong, uh, but it is important to note there is no objective cosmic standard which t ties certain crimes to death. That is an argument from traditionalism rather than any provable standard. Going back to what you were saying there about an eye for an eye and uh, it not necessarily being clear what in any given case is um, appropriate and sort of equal retribution. Uh, but even in cases where we can 
make the equivalent thing be done to the perpetrator, it's not necessarily the case that we should. Um, obviously, the, the phrase that I'm getting here at here is, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Um, and this looks back to what we were saying at the beginning about the, the point of justice systems and the point of the criminal system. And I think the key difference here between proponents of, of the death penalty or proponents of a sort of uh, retribution-based justice system and us <laughs> is what is the perfect world that we're aiming for? What does that look like? In, in a world where the criminal system works as well as possible, what does, what does that world look like? And, and my answer to that, and I think anyone's reasonable answer, is a world where crime doesn't happen. Now, whatever you think should be criminal, um, whatever you think is sort of morally wrong, the world we're surely aiming for is a world where that doesn't happen, not a world in which terrible things happen equally to everyone. It's a world where terrible things don't happen at all. Yeah, and in quite a morbidly literal uh, eye for an eye example, uh, in, in Iran a few years ago, uh, there was a woman, Amina Barami, who was blinded in an acid attack, and the person was convicted for it, and she demanded uh, as a punishment, kind of a, the Islamic retaliatory principle, that he also be blinded uh, by having 20 drops of acid uh, dropped into his eyes. and. Iran was fully ready to carry out this punishment and then she, she kind of forgave him at the last minute. Um, but if that kind of response or that kind of situation makes you flinch and think, oh, you know, he, he's done a bad thing, but he shouldn't have acid dropped into his eyes. The same holds for the application of the death penalty. Someone can do a horrific thing and they may be psychopathic and they may be, you know, required to be removed for society, for the safety of society. Um, but in our view, there is not a moral argument for doing similarly horrific things back to the person. And I think that illustrates the welfare point that you were making earlier as well quite nicely, that if we're sort of looking at this from a utilitarian perspective and totting up the total amount of damage that's been done to humanity, to trot out another cliche, two wrongs don't make a right. And in that world of state-sanctioned revenge, uh, we end up with two blind people instead of none. So a lot of the arguments we've put forward so far have been uh, quite theoretical arguments. Um, there have been some practical ones, but mostly it's about the moral rightness of carrying out the death penalty or the lack of. But there are also some actively important practical objections to the existence of the death penalty uh, in an imperfect world and how it would be applied uh, and therefore arguments against its very existence. So the first of these arguments um, centers around the fact that the death penalty is by its nature uniquely and inherently irreversible as a penalty. Um, you know, you can find someone money, you can put someone in jail, uh, you can take away like an item of property that you think has been stolen, but all of those things are ultimately to a degree reversible. You can let someone out of jail, you, you can't compensate them for the, for the time inherently, but you can give them monetary compensation. If you find someone wrongly, the fine can be overturned. If you take a property away from someone because you think it's been stolen, you can return it when you discover it hasn't been. If you take away someone's life and you later discover that they are innocent, there is no way to undo that penalty. Now, in a world of ideal platonic justice where we could be absolutely sure in every case where the death penalty handed out that the person is 100% unambiguously guilty, then 
there is perhaps an argument to say the death penalty might exist if you believe in that retributive justice. However, in the world that we live in, there is no way you can be 100% sure. Since 1972, there have been 185 exonerations uh, of death row prisoners in the USA because of new types of evidence like DNA evidence coming to light. And that obviously didn't exist when they were convicted in the 60s and the 70s and now has developed to the point where their innocence could be proved. And these are people where the courts decided and juries decided beyond reasonable doubt they were guilty and new evidence then came to light to exonerate them. Uh, I think in total there have been 375 exonerations uh, since the 80s through DNA evidence for for all crimes, including those that, that aren't capital offences. Um, clearly, we have no idea what technology will develop in the future. We have no idea what new forms of evidence collection may come to light. Uh, and the overwhelming likelihood, or in fact, the statistical certainty is that if the death penalty exists, you will end up mistakenly executing innocent people. Right. And the the one sort of little addendum I, w I would add to that very well argued point is that I think some people, when we talk about um, exonerations and new DNA, ev DNA evidence coming to light, that means that people who were convicted a long time ago uh, were actually innocent. Um, some people's reaction to that might be, well, now that we have this technology, are we not able to tell uh, guilty from innocent and therefore the argument defeats itself? And what we need to remember um, which you did hint at there, but I just want to make it really explicit. What we need to remember is that we can never be 100% sure. And whilst we can improve um, evidence collection over time and we can get closer to, um, we can get more accurate more of the time, we are almost certainly never going to reach um, a, a point at which we can 100% certainly say who is innocent and guilty of exactly what. And to make matters worse, as long as that um, ambiguity exists, as long as that uncertainty exists, and there is a degree of subjectivity involved in uh, criminal sentencing systems, which, as I said, there absolutely is in every single justice system in the world, then we also open up the opportunity for bias in uh, the justice system and bias in the policing system and certain groups of people being convicted uh, more often of certain crimes, being convicted uh, with harsher sentences than others, um, despite the fact that there's no evidence to support that that, is, uh, that matches what's actually happening. And whilst this is true of any punishment, that there might be racial bias in... Um, in the justice system and certain harsher punishments might be handed out to uh, certain groups more than others and that's not specific to the death penalty as we've said the death penalty is irreversible and that that bias is taken to its worst extreme in this particular example right and there's a there's a long history of this in in many countries um obviously the no the notable example for which we have a lot of data uh, because it is a uh, a fairly open uh, democracy is the USA uh, and in the USA 42% of death row uh, death row inmates are are black um, and there is a lot of statistical evidence in the USA to show that black people are disproportionately uh, handed the death sentence for murder offenses so that's controlling for people who have been convicted of murder black people are still more likely to receive the death sentence um, 
Obviously, this is not a problem which is particular to the US, but in any country where the death penalty exists, there are minority groups uh, who are more likely to be more severely punished um, than, than the majority. And whilst racial bias can be quite active and intentional and conscious, uh, this is also something which, which might subconsciously filter through a system. Another argument to put forward related to this is that the state may actively misapply the death penalty or use it to actively persecute entire groups of people uh, or entire subsets of citizens. Uh, so this is something different, I guess, to the argument about racial bias. For those convicted, some people receive a disproportionately harsher sentence. This is the argument that for people that have done nothing that would really be considered wrong by most people, uh, they may be actively persecuted by the state and executed for speaking up against the state or protesting uh, or, or offences such as treason, uh, which we wouldn't see as, as capital offences uh, in, a, in a modern society. There is a question here about whether the state should be given the right to kill, uh, specifically with regards to people that have already been neutralised and pose no imminent threat to society or to others. Um, and earlier we talked about the occurrence of the death penalty around the world. Uh, the bulk of the death penalty happens in just a handful of countries, uh, and amongst those countries, the vast majority happens in China. Uh, and China routinely uses the death penalty, or the Chinese government routinely uses the death penalty to persecute political dissidents and various ethnic groups such as uh, Uyghurs and Tibetans and anyone who would speak out against the government. Um, Whilst this is not an argument which is imminently applicable to the UK, which doesn't look like it's sliding into that level of totalitarianism anytime soon, it is fundamentally dangerous to give a government that kind of power, uh, which can then be misused to persecute citizens. The little thing I'd add to that, um, you mentioned that we probably wouldn't see offences such as treason uh, as uh, worthy of capital punishment in this country and uh, or in modern countries and I would like to agree with you but to bring us back to the top of the podcast I do think a significant number of people in the comment section of the Daily Mail website uh, would disagree and I guess there's a whole other discussion we've got to have there at some point about patriotism and treason and whether that makes sense but what's clear is that whilst we do not think that capital punishment is ethical, um, there is definitely a subjective case that can be made for it if it fits in with your view of justice and, and right and wrong. That, that's perhaps up in the air. Um, but what is empirically and statistically beyond doubt is that capital punishment is not effective at deterring crimes of that nature. Um, and there is an incredibly high statistical likelihood or certainty that capital punishment would be applied to innocent people. And for those reasons, regardless of subjective, ethical or moral positions, we would argue that capital punishment is something that should not uh, be reintroduced in the UK, regardless of the fact that 50% of the public still supports it. If you think we've missed anything out, if you'd like to know more about anything that we've said, or if there is perhaps an argument that you'd like to put forward that we haven't addressed, please do get in touch with us. You can tweet us at underscore the violet underscore. You can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. Or you can visit our website, www.theviolet.net. Thanks for listening.